0: Thanks so much for being with us. We will have much more on the announcement. Earlier, it was made by Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth talking about fines now being given out. Now law enforcement and special constables have the authority to give out those fines to people who are caught breaking public health orders, having large parties, cramming people into house parties. A lot of people wanting to respond to that. So fear not, you will have time to do that a bit later on in the program. We want to shift gears a little bit, though because we've also been talking a lot about what is happening in parts of Vancouver. Strathcona Park, the tent city in that park, the fact that Oppenheimer Park is still shut down, that community not able to use that green space, even though the tent city has been moved out from it. Uh, the number of tents and homelessness on Vancouver streets. And Yale Town. a lot of residents of Yale Town saying they've noticed increased garbage, increased needles and crime in that part of the city of, as well. Well, it's not just downtown Vancouver. There are also concerns being raised about what's happening in downtown Victoria. And the executive director of the Downtown Victoria Business Improvement Association is on the line with us now. Jeff Bray, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me, Joe.
0: What does it look like? What's happening in downtown Victoria right now?
1: Well, you know, uh, just like Vancouver, uh, you know, we had a growing um, uh, number of people who were Uh, camping, uh, you know, sheltering outdoors in congregated areas even prior to COVID, uh, in part centered around uh, the uh, supervised consumption site that was opened up by Island Health. Uh, When COVID hit, uh, we saw a significant increase in this type of activity. So the city uh, tried to establish certain areas to allow this camping to happen, and one of them was uh, in Centennial Square. Uh, the other was in Beacon Hill Park, which is not dissimilar to Stanley Park, just adjacent to our downtown. Uh, and uh, the province has also moved to buy some um, uh, hotels that obviously weren't being used and, and provide uh, housing for the, some of this population. And in any of all of these instances, we've seen, you know, unfortunately, an increase in sort of street disorder and... You'll break and enter crime uh, happening as a result, uh, and uh, Centennial Square, which is right uh, beside City Hall, has one of those tent cities. And some of the businesses in and around there have seen a, a market increase in uh, thefts, um, you know, disorderly conduct, um, needles, uh, you know, profane language, and and the like. So. Uh, it's been, you know, really impactful for businesses who are already struggling, obviously, with the, with recovery in the pandemic.
0: And I understand, too, I was reading that a city worker, I think it was a city worker, was pricked by a needle, and that's now happened four times this year.
1: Yes, I mean, we've seen, um, you know, the city staff having to deal with it, not only here in Centennial Square, but also another very large encampment in Beacon Hill Park. Uh, And in fact, city staff have advised that uh, they are not uh, prepared to work there um, regularly because of uh, safety concerns. Uh, Residents, uh, there's a 14,000 signature petition um, that is out there also uh, around Beacon Hill Park. So, you know, unfortunately, we, you know, we use the term homeless um, and obviously, you know, they're not, they're not housed right now, but we really are dancing around, I think, some of the core issues, which are around uh, mental health and addictions. And I think we need to have some honest conversations in our society about are we really actually helping these individuals who have so many barriers um, by allowing people just camp wherever they are and, you know, give them a a card with a social worker's number on it and hope that that's going to be sufficient. I think the mayor of Nanaimo, Leonard Krog, former um, uh, NDP MLA, in January, called for the discussion around, you know, hospitalization, congregate care, and I think we need to have those conversations um, because this particular population is not being well-served by us as a society right now.
0: Uh, no, and it doesn't appear to be helping anybody in that when you talk about the businesses and what they are going through and people that are in that area, and uh, like you said, the people that are living in the tents, uh, that, that many of them need medical help and medical attention and are not getting that.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's I mean, the crime is directly related to the fact that these individuals need to generate revenue several times a day in order to uh, purchase um, uh, their drugs. So they're going to do petty theft, you know, car break ins, you know, whatever the case may be. In some cases, uh, others um, utilize their addictions to get them to commit crimes on their behalf. We certainly see, you know, the sex trade. Uh, preying on some of these individuals. So they are extremely vulnerable, um, and in order for them to survive, they have to commit criminal acts uh, that impact, you know, businesses, residents, uh, employees in a very negative way. And I think we, we need to have some honest conversations about whether or not the community-based approach for this small population of individuals is really the right approach. There's lots of types of homelessness, um, socioeconomic, uh, people fleeing violence, where, yes, actually, if you can just find them a stable address, they can access services and and start their journey. But for somebody who's in the depths of, uh, you know, drug-induced psychosis, uh, may have an undiagnosed or untreated mental illness, this approach isn't working, and I think we need to to look at um, ways in which we can support these individuals and, obviously improve the the neighbourhoods uh, at the exact same time. Uh,
0: the mayor has said, I think uh, in a statement, has said that uh, she is starting to think that stopping camping in the core business district to putting a ban on camping might be in order. Do you think that would help things or would that just push it somewhere else?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, of course, that's uh, on the one uh, side, that's exactly what would happen is if you did, in fact, uh, bring the ban in, um, these individuals would have to go somewhere else. Um, but the reality is that there's already you know tent encampments in in parks and other parts of uh, the city. Uh, but they're more for lack of a better term, more appropriate because they're not neighboring on businesses and hotels, um, you know office workers um, where their impact would be less uh, than it is right across the street from from businesses that are trying to to manage through this uh, pandemic. And also, uh, you know, staff uh, working in and around these encampments uh, that work in businesses, maybe they close at the end of the day by themselves, don't feel particularly safe. So, yes, it would push it to other areas, but the impact would be less in those other areas than it is in the middle of your commercial area downtown.
0: Right. And even looking at the numbers, like you said, with the increasing crime and and people know where it's coming from. Uh, but do you think that number is even bigger, though, with businesses realizing that police are stretched as well? They might not be able to come if you uh, if you come to your shop in the morning, the window's busted. Is it really worth making the call and putting a report in knowing that police are stretched to the limit as well?
1: Well, you know, certainly uh, when you have a smash and grab where that front window is broken or the back door has been jimmied, you tend to make a police report because that's required for your insurance claim. But the, the shoplifting that's going on, um, you know, unless you have a description or, or closed circuit television pictures of the potential suspect, uh, I think a lot of businesses just don't bother because there is no follow-up. There's no insurance claim, but there's also no follow-up. But you, you, ha- you just know you had a $500 coat stolen off the rack, but you can't identify the person. So I think there is a lot of that type of uh, activity that's uh, un- unreported because it doesn't serve a purpose. And yes, you know, our police uh, in Victoria are stretched, our bylaw uh, are stretched. Um, so, you know, they're constantly having to prioritize more serious crimes, more um, immediate crimes. So, uh, our businesses are feeling you know um, somewhat left uh, to their own devices, and what they 're really asking for is you know everybody is, understands the challenges these individuals uh, may be facing and i, I don 't think we need to worry about a lack of compassion, but we need to rebalance our compassion with uh, enforcement of of uh, basic laws around theft and violence and and open drug use um, that the rest of us um, abide by to try to bring some order uh, back into our commercial areas and our neighbourhoods.
0: All right, we'll leave it there. I know the Mayor has said that uh, they'll be looking at it again when Council uh, returns in September. Uh, We'll follow up with you then, but thank you so much for coming on the program and chatting about this today. My
1: pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being with us. Uh, Lots of time for more of your reaction to the announcement this morning. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth saying that effective immediately there will be fines for people who are caught breaking public health orders when it comes to COVID-19. Right now, though, we want to take a look at what's happening in some other parts of the world. And Shane Woodford, who used to work right here, now a freelance journalist based in Denmark, is on the line with us with the latest from there. Shane, thanks for being with us again. Oh, it's good to hear your voice, Joe. Hope you're well. I hope you're well. Uh, also, first, let's start. I do want to talk about school and the return to school, but also there was an issue with some testing in Denmark. What happened?
2: Yeah, so uh, essentially in Denmark, we have something that's sort of akin to the social insurance number there. But here in Denmark, it's like a digital key for your online identity. Use it in any transaction with the state, a doctor visit, all of that kind of stuff. So it's imperative uh, to use that when you go get a COVID test because you also use it to go and get your result online 24 or so hours later. About 4 o'clock this afternoon local time, there was some kind of IT bug in, I don't know, a server offline somewhere, and it would not process the CPR numbers, essentially cutting the link between the person getting the test and any results coming down the road. So as of 4 o'clock this afternoon, uh, COVID testing across Denmark was knocked offline, uh, just about half an hour ago, the authorities put out a press release saying they figured it out, and uh, they hope to have everything back up and running as of Saturday morning. But as you know, Jill, I mean, people need a COVID test result. If you're a school teacher or you're working in some kind of situation around people, uh, you develop some symptoms. It's pretty key to know whether you were yes or no as fast as humanly possible. So. I assume that set off a pretty big scramble here today.
0: Yeah, and do you know what the the time was before the the technical, before this glitch, what the time was as far as from a test to getting your results?
2: Yeah, that's a big story here. They've pledged to have test results for 80% of all tests in Denmark uh, back to you within 24 hours. Currently, that's being done um, in about half the cases. But the big push as of this weekend was to vastly increase testing as well as increasing the speed at which you get a result back. So uh, starting that off on a weekend where you've put a, a lot of promises on paper, uh, to start that off with a big IT glitch that throws a monkey wrench into that is not the best thing. But there is a big push here uh, to get tests back, re- test results back as fast as possible. As you know, I mean, if you take 48 hours, three days, four days, I mean, who knows whether you've been exposed again in that time when you get your first test result back. So the faster, the better.
0: Yeah, it's got to be stressful. So tomorrow they hope to have things back online.
2: Yeah, they say Saturday morning everything will come back online. I'll keep an eye out uh, on that. Uh, They think they're going to have it back at Copenhagen Airport as of this evening. Obviously a big pressure point there for incoming travelers.
0: All right. So what's happening with schools? Because Denmark has been a bit ahead of Canada in many parts of this, schools being one of them. What, is, what does it look like as far as children and students heading back to schools?
2: Yeah, the school year here, Jill, started at the beginning of August. The so school's been back for a few weeks already, with one exception. Uh, there's a bit of an outbreak going on in Denmark. Uh, most of the cases are in two specific areas, one an area outside of Copenhagen that's linked to a slaughterhouse, The other is an outbreak in Denmark's second-largest city, Aarhus. So while the rest of the nation here in Denmark went back to school two weeks ago, um, students in Aarhus, because there was a big flare-up of cases, uh, were delayed two weeks and then another two weeks. So they won't physically go back to school September 4th. Uh, We'll talk about school in a sec, but just maybe circle back to this other thing. The students in Aarhus aren't very happy, Jill, and they're planning a big strike on Monday because they say they're sick and tired of sitting there staring at their screens and learning online. Um, Schools overall, the return has been really good. There hasn't been an outbreak or any kind of COVID situation directly related uh, to any school that I'm aware of here in Denmark. There was some trepidation when school year resumed at the end of last year, uh, when they, about a month or so before the end of the school year, they brought all the kids back. And there was a lot of concern about kids being used, um, you know, as sort of test subjects in this big uh, big, uh, COVID experiment. But the kids went back, and the cases in Denmark continued to decline and decline and decline, and there was no flare-up, and I think that put a lot of parents at ease. school has returned here. As I said, it's been about two weeks. They're relying heavily on a cleaning uh, strategy, so everything inside the school is cleaned uh, twice a day. Uh, students have to wash their hands every hour and a half. Uh, classes are socially distanced by one meter, so however many students you can fit in a classroom with that formula. And then each class was kept to themselves even outside as much as possible so to prevent any kind of uh, cross infection. And so far, fingers crossed, that has worked out rather well.
0: And I understand in the Denmark model that masks are not mandatory for children or for teachers.
2: That is true. Uh, Masks as a whole, um, BC has been way ahead of us on the mask front. Masks here have... Um, Until a few weeks ago, I could probably count on one hand, Jill, uh, during the entire pandemic about the number of people I've seen in Denmark anywhere wearing a mask. A couple of weeks ago, when the outbreaks began to flare up, uh, people began to put on masks. When things began to open up, for instance, amusement parks, there were certain situations in there where masks were required. So you started to see a little more mask use. Uh, Again, because of the outbreak in cases, effective midnight tonight here in Denmark, masks will be mandatory on all public transit. So that's ferries, trains, taxis, buses, that that provision extends to bus stations, train stations. Uh, So that's going to be a big change for Denmark, and there's been a push to uh, have enough masks for people to buy. A lot of stores have been sold out because they've had a big run. So that's going to affect everybody 12 years and up on the public transit system. But no, nothing in schools.
0: Uh, Do you think that people will buy into that? It seems like such a shift when you've gone from not requiring masks in places like schools and in public places to now bring in uh, that that rule that people have to wear them.
2: Yeah. And if this was North America, I would totally agree with you. But it's Denmark. (laughs) And here there is really an attitude... Um, that sinks into the psyche, the nationality of this country, that is to put the society as a whole over yourself. And uh, if something is mandated and Danes look at it and go, yeah, okay, that makes me safer and it makes people around me safer, uh, they will just do it virtually questions unasked. So Um, My bet is tomorrow when people line up to get on buses, 99.9% of everybody getting on a bus, a ferry, a train, a taxi will have a mask on and there'll be no screaming or crying or big element of the lunatic fringe out there, you know, decrying all of this stuff in some kind of rage-filled hysteria. Uh,
0: How are the numbers doing uh, in Denmark as far as infections?
2: Sorry, say that again?
0: Uh, How are the numbers doing as far as overall infections and the infection rate?
2: Yeah. Yeah, the infection rate uh, was down uh, pretty low. We had almost nobody in hospitals. We were doing about, you know, between almost single digits for a while there, and up up to around, you know, 10 or 20. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned, there was an outbreak, first in that slaughterhouse outside Copenhagen and then Aarhus, and the numbers shot up uh, 100, 150. There were over 200 one day, uh, which is numbers we haven't seen here literally since the outbreak began months and months ago. Um, as of today, there are 71 new cases, uh, but the number of deaths has not gone up with the rise. We're now in uh, like 10 straight days without seeing a coronavirus death here in Denmark. And the corona fatality rate, which was about 4.3%, for most of the pandemic, as of five days ago, has now slid under 4%. It's currently 3.8%. So, yeah, cases rising, deaths not rising at all. And that, I think, is somewhat of a silver lining as people kind of get nervous about the coronavirus again.
0: And I know that it was similar to B.C. It was at the end of May Uh, in Denmark. You saw shopping malls and restaurants and bars open. Uh, I did see a comment from you, I think it was this week, uh, because we've had a bit of an issue with some of the nightclubs uh, in Vancouver, in B.C. Uh, Surprised that nightclubs were even open here.
2: Yeah, um, when we had the big lockdown back in March, literally they closed every aspect of society here, with the exception of, you know, stuff you needed like food, grocery stores, things like that. Um, nightclubs, while everything else has been reopened, nightclubs and discos in Denmark have remained closed. And they won't reopen here until at the very earliest, October 31st. And there's a good chance that they will not reopen this year at all. And the concern is if is you fit a bunch of people into a nightclub and you add alcohol, impairing judgments, and while well, there is a pandemic going around that is going to result in disaster. And it's really interesting here that there is no outcry to reopen nightclubs. Matter of fact, the conversations I've had in the last few weeks as we approached the date where they're going to announce a phase four reopening, which was supposed to include nightclubs here, Jill, and then that was pushed off. But the, the, the conversation leading up to it, wasn't about schools or the concern about reopening schools. It was, I really hope they don't reopen nightclubs because that's a recipe for
0: disaster. And indeed,
2: the government chose not
0: to. All right. Well, thanks so much for bringing us uh, this update, Shane. Always good to talk with you. Thanks again.
2: Always good to talk to you too. Stay safe.
0: We're talking a lot about compliance, about enforcement on the show today on the heels of that announcement about more enforcement coming for people who are caught breaking COVID-19 public health orders. We will talk more about that a bit later on in the program. But something else to be mindful of, we thought it was worth a reminder today that starting Monday, masks are going to be mandatory on TransLink if you are taking transit. And Ben Murphy, who is a spokesperson with TransLink, joins me on the line now to talk a little bit more about what that means. Ben, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me.
0: I think most people have heard this or at least know that this change is coming and it will be mandatory as of Monday. So what exactly will be in place Monday?
3: So come Monday, it will be mandatory for everyone on board a transit vehicle to be wearing a mask. Now, that includes bus, SkyTrain, uh, West Coast Express, Handy Dart, Seabus. Uh, so all of our vehicles in the fleet, you will need to be wearing a mask on board. Uh, already, we've seen uh, anecdotally reports that compliance is increasing as we move closer to that uh, date. So that's encouraging to see. Uh, but come Monday, we'll expect everyone to be putting on a mask. And I think that at this point, most people uh, have a mask from going to various stores and everywhere else that's giving them out. That said, we're giving out another 20,000 of our reusable tea masks over the next couple of weeks. And I'm actually down at Surrey Central Station at the moment. where We're about to give away Uh, a thousand or so here
0: (laughs) nice are are people there ready and uh, waiting to get them
3: yes Uh, there's always a bit of excitement when the mask bus pulls up and we get the tea masks out so definitely there's uh, (laughs) there's going to be uh, a a physically distanced lineup we always need to make sure of that and be careful about that but yes we will have uh, plenty of uh, attention here
0: yeah no crowding to get the masks um there are some exemptions who is who is exempt from wearing it
3: uh, so the exemptions include anyone that isn't able to wear a mask due to a disability or a medical condition. in children under five as well uh, are exempt from wearing a mask. First responders in any sort of an emergency situation, that includes our employees as well in an emergency situation, uh, and any employees that are working uh, behind a barrier or separated from uh, passengers or customers in a way.
0: Uh, And because that might be, I was thinking of scenarios where people might think it looks odd if they're getting on a bus and noticing that the bus operator isn't wearing the mask, then the exemption there is because that person is behind plexiglass and there's that level of protection.
3: That's correct. I mean, the mask ultimately is designed to protect those around you. Um, It's not so much for yourself, it's for others. And so our operators are all behind barriers, whether it be the plexiglass or the vinyl barrier. Therefore, there is that separation between them and customers. Now, that said, uh, a lot of our bus operators are wearing masks and it seems like more are starting to wear them as well. Uh, Same with um, some of our our SkyTrain attendants and other frontline employees. So um, you may see more uh, employees wearing them as well, but for bus operators behind those barriers, it's not a requirement.
0: And like you said, the whole idea of wearing the mask is, is my mask protects you, your mask protects me. Are you concerned at all? Or what happens in a scenario when somebody might take issue with another transit rider who's not wearing a mask?
3: Mm-hmm. And that is something we've, we've thought a lot about, you know, those kind of conflict scenarios. Talking to other transit agencies, um, they, they've said it hasn't been... A problem, like they haven't had significant instances of that. So we'll very, very closely monitor it. But it's one of the reasons we've also made available our exemption cards, which people can collect uh, from either Stadium, Chinatown, or Waterfront stations if they fit that exemption criteria. And so if there was to be an instance, uh, and of course we would not encourage uh, customers to confront other customers, but if that did happen and someone is exempt, uh, having that card might help to de escalate the situation as well. Um, But of course, our advice to customers is is certainly not to confront anyone else. And I think we have to have some empathy and understanding toward others because uh, it doesn't mean necessarily just looking at someone, um, whether they can or can't wear a mask. Sometimes people can have uh, lung issues or uh, severe asthma and so forth, and that means they can't wear a mask, but they might look otherwise healthy. So we do have to have that understanding as we move forward.
0: Uh, I know transit police will have the power. They obviously have the ability to enforce the rule. Will they be doing that?
3: I think we want to see how this goes in the initial stages, Jill. So in this uh, first stage, we will be focused on education and not enforcement. So we want to see what compliance is like. And we look to those other cities that have done this. Toronto is a great example. They report 95% compliance with no enforcement at all. And so if we could get those sort of numbers, we would be extremely encouraged and and we wouldn't you know have to go down that enforcement route necessarily if you um see today out on the system i mean i was on skytrain i'd say probably around 70 odd percent on the expo line were wearing masks as as a guest i saw uh, linda Steele from your uh, network was on canada line and she reported 100 percent on a relatively full train now i wouldn't say that's the norm but that's certainly encouraging to see so if we can start to get some of those high numbers hopefully enforcement doesn't need to be a feature of this policy.
0: Uh, no, and, uh, and I would agree, uh, as I take transit most often to work, too. And in the last week, the increase in people wearing masks has been ex- very noticeable. The compliance has been huge, uh, whether or not people thought the rule was already in place or getting ready uh, for the rule on Monday. So it is encouraging to see that.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I don't mind which one it is as long as people <laughs> are wearing them. <laughs> uh,
0: does it matter the type of mask? I mean, there are issues with some of the vented masks don't actually protect other people. Uh, people sometimes wear it below the nose, which doesn't do anything. What about the type of mask and wearing of the mask?
3: Look, at this stage, what what we say is that as long as as it is covering the nose and mouth, uh, we will accept that as a a mask or face covering. It can include a a face shield as well. We've had some people inquire about that because they find it more comfortable to wear a face shield. So we're not setting stringent requirements, keeping in mind it is a a non-medical face covering. So as long as it helps to mitigate uh, droplets in a, in a reasonable way, uh, which most of those should, then that will be acceptable to us.
0: What should someone do if they get to the bus stop and they realise they've forgotten their mask?
3: Well, uh, you know, it, it's a, a difficult situation, I suppose. I would encourage them to try and uh, get their mask and remember to bring their mask. If they don't have a mask with them, we won't necessarily have supplies uh, on board the buses. So uh, if people can try to remember, that's really what we would encourage them to do. And I think it will become more commonplace as we move forward with this policy. And I would hope that it becomes like picking up your keys to go outside, that you just remember to do it and it becomes second nature. So that's sort of what we would hope moving forward. I know that's not going to happen every time. There will be instances where people may forget. uh, But um, moving forward, I'd expect that people will start to remember.
0: Right. But it's not as though people will be denied entry onto the bus because they don't have one? No.
3: Our employees may remind people, though, and they may say, "Oh, you know, where is your mask or uh, do you have a mask? Uh, and if people say they forgot, then there might be, you know, some accommodation there where employees will say, well, remember next time. So we're not denying people service or enforcing at this point. Um, you know, again, I think we do have to have some understanding of others. Is this is a new policy rolling out. We're doing everything we can to make sure people are well aware. But no doubt there will be some instances where people just forget and they, they have a critical appointment or something like that they have to get to. So we do have to have some understanding about uh, moving forward. We hope that becomes commonplace.
0: All right. I'll let you go. I know the mask bus is uh, if it's not there already, <laughs> it will be pulling up shortly. Uh, ben Murphy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Well, as you remember, it was just yesterday, we found out the cost of a new plan, and that's for CERB to transition to new benefits and to make changes to EI, a $37 billion plan. And I think we can all agree that these are times that we've not seen before. We are still dealing with the pandemic and we'll be dealing with it for months at least to come. But when we look at the numbers and we look at the changes, especially the changes made to EI, what does this actually mean for what it's going to cost Canadians, and what it means for Canadians in the workforce. Well, my next guest is the President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan Kelly joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be with you. Uh, you've crunched some of the numbers and looked at this. And again, not to suggest that people don't need help or aren't hurting because of the pandemic, uh, but walk us through a little bit your concerns with the, with changes uh, to EI.
4: Yeah, look, uh, the government did need to do something. The, um, the uh, CERB benefit program was set up during the worst of the pandemic. And, and, of course, as you said, there are still millions of Canadians that do need help. Uh, that part we get and, and transitioning them from CERB to the employment insurance system uh, also makes sense on a lot of levels. What worries me about this is that we are now in, we're now changing a whole bunch of EI policies uh, really, really quickly uh, and, and with the throne speech around the corner in September, some of these policies we worry may stick around for the long term. Let me just highlight one of them. Uh, the, the new EI program for those that don't qualify for EI, haven't earned, haven't worked enough hours to be able to get EI benefits. They've lowered the bar now so that you only have to work 120 hours in the past year to be able to qualify for 26 weeks of benefits. So that think about that 120 hours. That side was three and a half weeks of full-time work, or you could work three hours a week or less and collect a, a half year of benefit. So when I was 19, I washed dishes at a pizza place in Winnipeg. I was 15 years old, working at junior high, actually. And now if I lost that job or decided to quit that job in many instances, or if I was laid off and then refused to return – I would now qualify for $10,000 in EI benefits from losing my three-hour-a-week position. $400 a week versus, uh, what you know, even at 15 bucks an hour, that would be $45 a week. And, and you know, we've got to be fair. We've got to provide support to Canadians that need it. But we shouldn't be paying them more than 100% of what they were earning prior to COVID. That's our concern.
0: And is it a concern as well, because we're hearing from businesses in some cases saying that it's more attractive now, even before the changes were made, it was more attractive to stay on CERB rather than coming back to work, uh, like a scenario that you just outlined, that coming back you would be making far less uh, than what you're making now. And and the concern there also was that CERB was running out and the uncertainty there.
4: That's exactly the case. Uh, we had a bunch of our members, small business owners, independent business owners, that said when they called their workers to rehire them, the worker said, you know, I'm I'm actually doing okay. I'm on the sur benefits. I don't have to work. I'm going to take the summer off, check in with me in September. And that's not what income support was there for. Yes, of course, there are Canadians that, that have uh, serious, critical have critical illnesses and, and need some support, or perhaps for them they have a respiratory disease and they may not be able to come back to work for fear of catching COVID. But that's not the case for for most of us. Uh, Most Canadians are returning to work, and and we shouldn't ensure, we shouldn't create a program where where you have the choice of working or not working, uh, leaving it entirely up to you. We need to make sure that there are benefits for those that don't have a choice, that that have to work, uh, but would like to work, but unfortunately there isn't a job for them to come back to. And that's the difficult balancing act government has in in front of it. I don't think they've achieved that Lots in the policy changes that I think make sense during a pandemic. They've added now 10 days of paid sick leave. That, again, makes sense during a pandemic. We don't want workers coming in if they're sick and potentially affecting other people. But, gosh, if we do those kinds of things, if we make these as permanent changes, we have to think through the costs and the unintended consequences of these policies, including, you know, really hampering the work ethic at a very early stage in someone's life. If we say to an 18, 19-year-old that you can make more stay at home, what message does that send about uh, and what, what lessons do they learn and take away from that for the long term?
0: And when you talk about those scenarios where small businesses have reached out to employees about them coming back and somebody said, no, I'm going to take the summer off and get back to get back to you in the fall. It was my understanding, though, if you do that, technically, if your job has been offered back to you, unless there's a medical reason or another reason why you can't go back, you shouldn't actually still qualify for CERB.
4: Unfortunately, there were no rules in the CERB that would require that. CERB, you could, you could turn down a job. You didn't have to be available for work. You would, you would continue to get that benefit. One thing with EI, the new, ch- the new program the government is proposing at the end of September, you are supposed to be available and looking for work. The, the, weir- the, the fear that we have, though, that is that there is no tracking mechanism that if an employer, after the pandemic, has called you back to offer you your job back, The EI system isn't going to know that, so it's going to be entirely up based on the honor system for that employee to to let the EI system know that they've been recalled for work in order for their benefits to expire, and and that's just not going to – I don't think that's going to cut it.
0: What do you think would have worked then in that the reasoning given by the government was that people simply don't have the hours and wouldn't have qualified under the old EI system? Do you think that they just swung too far in the other direction and, and missed the place where there might have been a happy medium?
4: Absolutely. Look, I, I represent a lot of self-employed people that didn't qualify for EI. And I think it is good news that they will have some benefits to rely upon in the coming weeks until their, until their business is, is essentially back or they can re, regain some of their clients uh, or customers. But, but, but we have to be careful not to replace more than the uh, person's income. Uh, and that's what we've done essentially through this policy. So, for, for example, if you were that, that student that was used to making uh, $50 a week or $100 a week uh, and you lost your job, you didn't have it to come back to, it's entirely appropriate for government to say, "Okay, we're going to give you that fifty dollars or a hundred dollars." We'll even make make you, you know, whole so that you get a hundred percent of your pre-COVID income. But I don't think we should take that next step and say we're actually going to give you four hundred when you were making fifty. That you know that sends some perverse signals, in. and I don't think that that's going to set us up for success in terms of trying to get people back into work and making sure that they you know that Canada's economic recovery is is uh, sped up
0: Well, and that's the thing, isn't it, too, that it does go hand in hand. We're talking about individuals and talking about making sure that there is work and there is a job for people to go back to. But here we also have this plan, this $37 billion plan, which was announced a day after Parliament was prorogued. We don't have a budget. We don't know. I mean, we know we're in huge debt, but we don't know what the plan is for the months and years to get out of it. And that's got to be a big concern for you, for members of your group as well.
4: It it sure is. I mean... The government has signaled that it's going to bring in a throne speech that will be transformational and, and creating all sorts of new social programs, uh, all sorts of new environmental policies, and many of those policies may make sense on their own. But gosh, you know, the, who is going to pick up the tab for some of these programs? Just the additional of the, the addition of ten paid sick days—if if the private sector uses sick time to the same degree that the public sector does right now. That could be a $40 billion a year cost to the system. Well, somebody's going to have to pay that $40 billion. And, and I'm telling you, you know, the business community right now, small biz, those little retail shops, uh, service sector businesses, restaurants, that are struggling even to keep their doors open now are not going to have the money to be able to ante up giant new funding for EI policies or other social programs at this moment. We've got to make sure that we can get through the pandemic before we start looking at, at some of these major new spends, that's, that's our priority right now. Let's focus on the the crisis we have right now. Uh, Let's, let's, put off some of the other things that government might wish to do under ordinary circumstances.
0: And interesting, when you bring up the sick days too, and I agree with you that it's very important and we all can agree that nobody should be going to work sick now, but we're being told too and come the fall that you're not to go to work if you have the sniffles, if you're fatigued, if you have any of these symptoms. And since we've already seen the shift and I'm sure many of your members have seen this shift to their employees working at home, I've talked to tons of people in businesses saying we're never going going back to the capacity that we, went, we were at before with people working in the office, that's also going to cut down. You might have the sniffles that you can't go into the office, but you can still work from home. You're not incapacitated with the sniffles. That's going to change it. And in many cases, I would think people won't need those 10 sick days because they're not losing a day of work. It's
4: true for a good chunk of the economy where there are alternatives that can help. And look, we don't even object to paid sick time for those that need it. If you have a job where you actually have to serve the public, that makes sense during a pandemic. I'm you know, what worries me, though, is that any entitlement program, as fair as it might sound on the surface, there are loads of people that abuse that. Uh, And it's one of the reasons why government employees use vastly more sick time than the private sector is you have it, and, and for some it kind of turns into additional days of vacation. That's not what these policies were designed for. We have to make sure that we have good systems in place, and we've got to avoid permanent policy changes during a based on the experience that we're having during a pandemic. That's what I worry about the most. Many of these policies that are in this EI reform right now were things that were on the union wish list for years and years and years to make it easier to get on EI, to make it more generous to stay on EI. For, for a long period of time. And, and we've got to make sure that, that before we flip the switch and say, yeah, this is the new rule, that we've really thought through all of the implications. And you can't do that while you're in the middle of fighting a worldwide pandemic where businesses are shuttered, people are losing their jobs in their homes.